Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. Today is Monday, October 23rd. I'm your host, Stephen Overly. A year ago, the Biden administration took a direct hit at China's tech ambitions when it slapped trade restrictions on microchips and the equipment needed to make them. Just last week, U.S. officials tightened the screws further. They expanded those restrictions, what the government calls export controls, to cover certain sophisticated chips that are necessary to develop artificial intelligence. The goal is to hobble China's military and its ability to make more advanced weapons. The administration says these latest changes will allow them to do that more effectively. On the show today, I spoke with the Commerce Department official behind the latest rules, Assistant Secretary for Export Administration, Taya Rosman Kendler. Pretend I'm not a tech reporter if we're just sort of chatting over coffee. Why will these final rules that have been released be better and more effective than the current rules that are in place? That's a great way of approaching this issue. We, um, you know, with export controls, you're always working to update your controls based on your assessment of the national security threat and also based on the evolution of technology. And so over the last year, since we released our October 7th rules, we've been deeply thinking with uh, government experts, civil society, industry experts about how to hone our controls and calibrate them to be more effective for for today's uh, national security world. And so we uh, took a look at our parameters that we had imposed last year, the technical parameters for the chips that are uh, really being used or have the capacity to be used in artificial intelligence for military modernization, and uh, feel like we've come up with a better way, a more effective way of controlling those highest-end chips. Uh, while also uh, not unduly interfering with commercial trade in, in the lower end chips. So, so that's our goal is, is to uh, accomplish our national security objective with as little commercial disruption as possible. And I, I'd love to dig into some of the, the changes that have been made and the, the rationale behind them. You know, one of the one of the biggest changes, it seems, is is those technical parameters that you refer to, which, you know, essentially these rules add some restrictions to some of the more sophisticated chips that are used for artificial intelligence. You know, I, I mean, is the, is the goal here with these rules to halt China's AI development? To the extent that artificial intelligence is being used for military modernization that threatens the United States or our allies and partners, to the extent that artificial intelligence is being used to model uh, nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction uh, and advance China's military and intelligence apparatus, right. that is our goal. That is our goal, to, to affect those end uses of artificial intelligence. Well, and speaking of those end uses, in reading the rules, it does seem to distinguish between chips used for kind of consumer applications and those used for military applications. You know, my understanding with China is that that line has always been quite blurred. And so, you know, I wonder how how do the rules account for that and differentiate what chips wind up being used in consumer applications versus military applications? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. By pursuing this military-civil fusion strategy, China is very deliberately blurring the lines for exporters and and uh, U.S. industry, allied and partner industry, to figure out. You know, they don't want their chips being used for military modernization, human rights violations, um, intelligence purposes, and and it's become more and more difficult given the Chinese government's strategy um, to distinguish. So, so what we are trying to do is thread a, a, a needle here and um, taking a look at what chips are used in data centers uh, and, and, and treating those a little bit differently than consumer-grade chips. There's obviously an enormous gaming application here, for example, for artificial intelligence chips. And right. um, to the extent that we can be sure that chips are being used in, in laptops or, or smartphones or gaming applications, that's not our focus. It's data centers and um, um, the nefarious applications that we, we are trying to get at. And so we've, we've updated our parameters. We've um, developed a sort of streamlined notification process. And then we've also treated truly consumer-grade chips all differently. Speaking of just sort of some of the other um, changes in these rules, you know, one challenge that has come up on this podcast actually in the past when it when it comes to export controls is what's been described to me as kind of a, a whack-a-mole problem where a Chinese company may be, you know, uh, sort of restricted in, in what exports it can receive. And that company then just, you know, sets up a shell company, you know, under a different name to avoid being caught, you know, importing those products. You know, how will these updated rules address that issue, if, if at all? Export controls can come at these national security concerns from multiple ways. And when we talk about the problem you've described, uh, that, that's often when we target end users specifically through our entity list, where we've identified that a foreign company poses a national security or foreign policy concern to the United States, and we can regulate exports to that entity uh, on an entity-specific basis. What we're doing here is much broader and more comprehensive. We're regulating the technology Regardless of who it's going to, these chips these that meet these parameters will be controlled for export to China. And we can review those transactions as we receive license applications to determine whether the end use and end user are consistent with our uh, national security objectives. That That's a much more comprehensive approach when we come at it from the technology side rather than the specific end user side. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. There was one other provision in the rules that stuck out to me that I, I'm curious to get sort of the, the understanding behind or, or rationale behind. This issue of China in particular potentially obtaining chips through other countries or chip making equipment through, you know, other countries, not not directly exported to China. 
In the rules, you know, there seems to be an expansion of the number of countries that are subject to export controls in, in an effort to put a stop to that. How exactly will that work? The whole premise in export controls is that we will receive license applications and we'll be able to review them to assess. You know, we look at the nature of the technology. We look at where it's going. We look at how it's going to be used and who will be using it. And then we also, of course, in every circumstance, look at risk of diversion to unauthorized end use and end user. That's our focus. And so with this rule, we are expanding the country scope taking a look at who is most likely to divert technologies to China that we have controlled to China. That's our focus. So we've added for purposes of our controls, the countries that are subject to U.S. arms embargoes already. Those are the countries that we've assessed are most likely to divert. Um, And we've also looked at a broader swath of countries where there is a concern about possible uh, PRC company uh, presence and and engagement. And so uh, by expanding our controls to that broader swath of country beyond the arms embargo destinations, uh, we're, we're not trying to uh, come out with a, a perspective of those license applications will be denied. In fact, we're very eager to approve them when they're going to end uses and end users that are consistent with our national security. We just want to make sure that we have an opportunity to take a look and make sure that there's uh, we, we are limiting uh, diversion as, as much as we can. You've mentioned this license um, requirement, which for those listening who may not know, essentially a company applies and essentially gets the Commerce Department's approval to make exports of some of these restricted goods when it's when it's allowed. Obviously, sort of how you calibrate that that approval has a lot of impact on how effective these rules ultimately are. Can you talk a bit about the methodology and rationale that goes into when you approve licenses versus when they're denied? The first point I'd like to make is that while license applications are submitted to Commerce, to the Bureau of Industry and Security, we are absolutely not alone in the review process. We have partners at the Department of Defense, Energy, and State who participate with us in the uh, review of license applications, and we together come up with an assessment based on all sorts of information, open source information, certainly, but also intelligence information, our understanding of the technology and how it can be uh, diverted from the intended end use. We look at all of these factors and more as the four agencies work together to review our applications. And of course, as you can imagine, we come at this from different equities and different expertise. Uh, each agency that that looks at license applications brings something extraordinarily valuable to the table. And we have these discussions interagency um, to to figure out the best course forward. And, and where is where there's di- dispute between the agencies, we can elevate that through a process that's very clearly spelled out in our regulations. so it's it's transparent and predictable for um, our regulated industry. As you can imagine, there's a lot of intelligence information and other confidential information that goes into our review process. We are strictly focused on um, the national security picture for the United States. And, you know, for companies who would be seeking out those licenses, you know, some of them have expressed concern about losing revenue from China, whether that can undermine, you know, their ability to, to invest in production, including here in the U.S. How do the commercial considerations factor into to those licensing, you know, requests and, and approvals or denials? 
For us, the key issue in commercial considerations is U.S. technological leadership. It's ensuring, I mean, that's part of a national security assessment, is making sure that the United States is able to uh, innovate and, and manufacture and produce the items that we need, frankly, to support our own national security. So there is a, a role, uh, there is a, a way to discuss um, those issues in the licensing process, of course. You know, I, I was a trade reporter before I covered tech. <laughs> so um, I've, I've been a little bit in the weeds uh, on this stuff, though certainly not as much as you have. One of the um, provisions that did kind of catch my eye from that trade perspective were some of the exemptions for equipment made with just small amounts of, you know, American technology, sort of these de minimis uh, requirements, as they're referred to. Can you talk about that rule change? Because it, it does seem to be designed in a way for these rules to extend to more more chips and more tools that are developed beyond the U.S. Um, and so the the impression that I think it's given myself and others is that there's an effort here to try to extend the reach of these these export controls even further than the first time. Our business is protecting U.S. national security, and that involves extending the reach of our controls, as you note. Um, we have uh, tweaked some of the provisions from last year to be more effective and to, to better accomplish our goals. As you know, we also have, or I think you know, we also have um, our foreign direct product rule, which applies uh, in, in this space. And, and, and for those uh non-export control geeks among your audience, yeah. um, and, and I'm sure there are some, when an item is manufactured, when certain items are manufactured outside the United States using certain U.S. technology or tooling, those items are subject to our regulations because of that um, U.S. genesis involved in creating the items outside the United States. And that's another example of how our controls are used to be just as, as effective as we, as we can possibly be. You mentioned earlier in our conversation the idea that uh, export controls have been done this way, you know, for a long time. They've certainly been, um, you know, uh, imposed over the decades in, in different scenarios. I have talked to some folks, though, in the recent weeks on this podcast who have expressed doubts that the, the export control system still works as effectively as maybe it once did, particularly, you know, a trade partner like China, where our economies are heavily intertwined. You know, China has a lot of global reach. You know, it doesn't need just the U.S., uh, you know, as we said, to to get some of this equipment. What would you say to to those critics who kind of question the effectiveness of export controls today and, and in the context of this particular national security concern? Export controls are eminently flexible. Um, we're, we're nimble with export controls. And I'm, I'm not sure where, where they're coming from. We are, uh, as technologies emerge, we control them and um, we calibrate our controls to the national security concern. So I, I don't think that export controls have changed in their functionality. We are constantly updating them, constantly measuring their effectiveness and uh, issuing new rules accordingly. We've put out an astounding number of, of rulemakings uh, related to emerging and foundational technologies, uh, which is certainly something that's, that's set forth in the Export Control Reform Act, but also sort of our day job. Um, we, are, we work with allies to identify new technologies that are innovated in the United States or elsewhere, and we apply controls. And, and we continue to do that 
as we go. Last week, we published a uh, a new rule adding new technologies to controls under the Vassanar arrangement, which is one of our multilateral arrangements for for export controls uh, related to sort of conventional arms and and components. Um, And we'll continue to do that. I I think our job is to monitor the national security environment in which export controls exist and calibrate our controls accordingly. And we do that in conjunction with the Departments of Defense, Energy, and State. And we have not taken our eyes off that ball for a second. Got it. Obviously, there was the news from now a few weeks ago when um, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo was actually in China. There was this announcement from telecom company Huawei that they had developed this chip heard around the world, if you will, Um, you know, that uh, supposedly China wouldn't have the technology to, to develop and yet and yet they did. And so I think that in particular, just raised question for folks whether, you know, the export control system we have now is is still sort of fit for purpose with the economic relationships that exist between China and, and countries uh, in the world today. Export controls are not designed to cut China off from U.S. technology. We are certainly observing that there are U.S. companies that um, find China to be um, a less welcoming environment now than it once was or that they once perceived it to be. You know, we, we recognize that companies are de-risking from China. With respect to the seven nanometer chip that um, we, we were reviewing that, that was in the, the new uh, Huawei phone, we're looking at that chip, um, as you can imagine. And that's not the focus of the rulemaking that we put out. But, you know, we're obviously looking carefully to figure out the character and composition of, uh, I guess I should call it really a purported seven nanometer chip rather than an actual seven nanometer chip. But we are looking at that chip carefully and also, you know, reviewing our our policy with respect to Huawei and SMIC. And that's distinct from from the rulemaking that we, we put out. Excellent. Well, I guess my last question for you, Assistant Secretary, is, is just sort of what should we expect next from from BIS and from from your office on this sort of broader concern around the national security considerations for chips in China? You know, I'd, I'd point to the fact first that the rules that we put out are interim final. We're, we're asking for public comment. We very much want public input so that we can make sure that we've calibrated them properly and that we understand the impact on industry of our rulemaking and um, make sure we're, we're getting them right. In the rulemaking, particularly on AI chips, we've asked a series of questions for public comment where we very much want to hear from industry and civil society to help us understand the future um, as we move forward with artificial intelligence controls in particular. One of the areas where we're um, looking very carefully has to do with cloud access, and we've asked some questions uh, in that space to make sure that that as we move forward with controls, we're we're doing them uh, to the best of our ability based on expertise garnered from uh, not just government sources, but but industry and civil society sources as well. Excellent. Well, um, Assistant Secretary, thank you for joining us uh, today on Politico Tech. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. That's all for today's Politico Tech. Want to hear more about chips? Attend Politico's event tomorrow. Fab's 
feds, and the future of the industry. You'll hear from Representative Michael McCall and the Commerce Department's CHIPS office, among others. Register at politico.com. And for more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. I'll see you here tomorrow.